as we talk about conscience, we're going to do this kind of in, in three parts, and um, I'll introduce that in a little bit, but I just kind of wanted to give you the heads up of where we're going over the next couple of weeks. So that's the plan. So this morning, as we begin talking about conscience, we're talking about conscience as God's deputy in the soul. God's deputy in the soul. And there's a reason for that title, and we'll get to it. Um, in Disney's 1940 film, Pinocchio, the Blue Fairy tells Pinocchio that he must learn to choose between right and wrong, and that his conscience will inform him. Jiminy Cricket then explains that conscience is that still small voice people won't listen to. And he's then commissioned by the fairy to be Pinocchio's conscience as Lord High Keeper of the knowledge of right and wrong, counselor in moments of temptation, and guide along the straight and narrow path. So Jiminy Cricket then promptly explains temptations to Pinocchio, saying, I'm going to help you. And anytime you need me, you know, just whistle like this. And he whistles, and then he sings, Always let your conscience be your guide. Well, in 1940, conscience was understood to be an inner voice that appealed to an outside standard of right and wrong to help you make good choices. Today, if there's any acknowledgement of conscience in the first place, it would be an inner voice that appeals not to an outside standard, but to a feeling, your own subjective internal standard, different for me than it is for you. That's not how Martin Luther understood it. In 1521, Martin Luther was standing on trial at the Diet of Worms. It's a, a city in Germany, he's on trial, he's guaranteed safe passage, supposedly, but he comes to defend himself against the lawyers of the Catholic Church who are very upset at the things that Luther has been teaching and writing. And so he comes and there's a table and it's got about 25 different writings of his piled on it. And they ask him to recant of all that he's written. And he argues with them and says, I can't. You, even you would agree with some of the things that are in here. You can't ask me to recant of all of this. And so they get more specific, and he asks for a night to consider his answer. And eventually, by the time it all comes down to the end, here's Luther's answer. <clears throat> he says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Holy Scripture or by evident reason, for I believe <clears throat> neither pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus, I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Why did Luther understand himself to be bound to act as he did? What did he mean? That his conscience was captive to the word of God. What would it look like to go against 
his conscience. And what is conscience in the first place? Over the course of the series, I hope to answer some of those questions. And so in three parts, today we're going to look at the conscience in mankind. So this is going to be kind of a general introduction. What is the conscience? How has God designed us with a conscience? And this applies to all mankind, believers and unbelievers. So today, because it's introductory and because it's kind of, you know, just giving definitions and things like that, it might seem a little classroom-ish, but I think it'll still have some practical aspects and hopefully some convicting aspects as we consider the conscience. Next week, we're going to talk about the conscience in the Christian life. So how are we supposed to interact with our conscience? How are we supposed to even train our conscience? And then the third week, I want to talk about the conscience in the public square. How are we supposed to act out in the world according to our conscience? So over the course of these three weeks, those are the kinds of things that we want to talk about. Now today, specifically as we answer the question, <clears throat> what is the conscience? I want to answer that kind of three ways. I want to give you some definitions. Then I want to give you some analogies, pictures that help us to think about what the conscience is like. And then I want to talk about how it operates a little bit. And then in the second part, as we look at the conscience in mankind in general, we're going to see that conscience applies to everyone. Everyone has a conscience. We're going to talk about some of the defects in our conscience, where conscience goes bad. And some of the limits, some of those are God-designed limits on conscience, what it can do and can't do. And we'll finish by looking at the conscience and the gospel. So let's begin with the question, what is the conscience? And we'll talk about some definitions here. 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 12 says, For our boast is this, Paul writes, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. So you can hear in those words, Paul talking about his conscience as a guide to his action and even an evaluator of his action. The word conscience, and let me start by kind of saying one thing that it's not. This is not the word conscious. Sometimes you'll hear people use those interchangeably. You are conscious, right? If you get hit in the head with something, you become unconscious. Conscious means you're awake. Your conscience is something different. Okay, they're different, different ideas. So conscience comes from two words, con and science. Con means with or alongside. Science means to know or knowing. So this means knowing with or to know with. And the reason that this word is applied to the thing that we call the conscience is this is knowing yourself with God. It's you and God having the same knowledge of yourself. That's the idea behind conscience. It's a knowledge of yourself that aligns with God's knowledge of you. 
So Richard Sibbs, as he was preaching on the verse that I just read, 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says, it is called conscience because it knows with God. It is a knowledge with God and a knowledge of a man's self. He goes on to say, what is conscience but the soul itself reflecting upon itself? It is the property of the reasonable soul. That just means it's using reason. That's a tool that God has given us and the conscience reasons. Okay, it's the property of the reasonable soul and the excellency of it that it can return upon itself. Animals can't do that. As much as you like to think that your dog has a personality that like you think you know what it's thinking and that your dog, like if you tell it that it did something wrong, that it's going to go sit in the corner and think about it, it's not going to think about it. Okay, animals don't reflect upon themselves. They act by instinct and training, but they don't reflect upon themselves. This is something unique to us as humans. We can think about what we've done. We can evaluate our own actions. We can recognize when we've done something right or wrong. William Ames wrote a book called Conscience with the Power and Cases Thereof. And he wrote that kind of talking about what the conscience is and then helping people work through different situations and what you should do according to conscience. And in there he says, a man, conscience is a man's judgment of himself according to the judgment of God on him. God has given us a conscience so that we will be self-reflective, so that we will seek to see ourselves the way that God sees us. This is actually often a prayer of mine for my kids, that they will learn to see themselves as God does, meaning good and bad, that they will see themselves and their sin the way that God does, that they won't think something's okay when God doesn't think it's okay but then that they'll also understand who they are in Christ if they have faith in him, their identity in Christ and the forgiveness of sins. But I want them to see both. It's important that we see ourselves rightly and conscience helps us in that. So let me give you then some analogies that might help to kind of fill out the picture of how conscience works. Romans 2.15 says, Their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. There you hear the word witness. This is courtroom language. And so courtroom is one of the first analogies of how the conscience operates. Richard Sibbs goes into great detail about this in his writing on conscience. And he says the conscience, first of all, is like a court reporter or a register who records everything we've said and done. And conscience is a witness who testifies regarding all we've said and done. And conscience is an accuser who makes allegations or an excuser who defends. Conscience is a judge who gives a verdict on our thoughts and words and deeds. And conscience is even, he says, an executioner who inflicts the first punishment. Now think about this. He says the first punishment is within a man when he knows his guilt and recognizes his rightful penalty. If I can talk to the kids for a minute, you know that feeling 
when you've done something wrong and you realize that your parents found out the thumping in your chest, that feeling that you have. And adults, we have that too, right? That's what Sibs is talking about. He says that's the first inflicting of punishment. He says it this way. He says there is a flash of hell presently, meaning in the present, after an ill act. Whether you're caught or not, you've done something wrong and you have that feeling. He says that's a flash of hell presenting itself in your life. And then uh, he says if the understanding apprehends these dolorous or sorrowful things, things that bring sorrow, then the heart smites as David's heart smote him. He says the heart smites with grief for the present and fear for the time to come. It, it, it's a, it's a, a, a momentary hint of the judgment that's coming because of the sin I just committed. So all the courtroom language is one analogy that helps us to understand how the conscience functions. Another is a notary. John Bunyan, in his book, Holy War, has a character in the town of Mansoul called Mr. Recorder, whose name was Mr. Conscience. So the recorder, the notary, or the conscience in the soul. That's what he's getting at there. William Fenner says, Conscience is God's register book that should be opened at the day of judgment, wherein is set down our thoughts, words, and deeds. Just like a notary makes an official record, your conscience makes a record in your life. And so Joel Beakey and Mark Jones explain it this way. They they say this register of our internal and external activities will serve as the basis upon which we are excused or accused on judgment day. So a courtroom and a notary. Conscience also functions as a preacher. William Fenner again, he says, conscience is a preacher also to tell us our duty both towards God and towards man. It's a powerful preacher, he says. It exhorts, it urges, it provokes. It's the most powerful preacher that can be. So conscience functions as a kind of courtroom, as a notary, as a preacher. It also functions as a mirror. We've said this before about God's law. Similarly, the conscience functions this way. William Fenner's book on the conscience is actually titled The Soul's Looking Glass. That's just an old-fashioned word for a mirror. So just like the the law shows you where you've done something wrong, the conscience serves as a mirror in our lives to help us see where we've done things right or wrong. So Robert Harris says, conscience to set in man to make known to man in what terms he stands with God. Thence its name, therefore fitly termed the soul's glass or the soul's mirror. Uh, Thomas Adams gives a similar picture. He says it's kind of like your stomach. Your stomach, if you eat something that's rotten or no good, your stomach troubles your whole body. Maybe even to the point of sending it back out if it's really bad. He says the conscience troubles your whole being. It shows you what's going on inside, so to speak. And then finally, the deputy. And this is the one that we have as the name for the series. And there's a reason for that. Of all the Puritan writers who wrote on the conscience, this is probably the most common image they used, that the conscience is God's deputy. 
So Richard Sibb says, conscience is placed as God's deputy and vice regent in man. Now I want you to notice two things here. Deputy, not sheriff. Vice regent, not king. James Durham, conscience speaks for God and is appointed by him as his deputy to be a remembrancer of duty and a restrainer from sin. So conscience has a position of authority, moral authority in your life, but it's not ultimate. It's supposed to represent God. That's the role of the conscience. It's God's deputy then. Now, I have a little bit of a problem in that because of when I grew up and the TV shows that I watched, and yes, they were reruns at the time, I have an image in my mind when I hear deputy of Barney Fife. And there's some ways in which this is a good image to help us with conscience and some ways that it's not. Uh, if you're familiar with the Andy Griffith show, you may be able to hear in your head Barney saying some things like, now just a minute, right? Stop, stop. The conscience does that for us. Or you're in big trouble, mister. Again, conscience does that in our lives. Or we've got to nip it in the bud. That's what the conscience wants to do. It wants to stop us when some sinful thought or activity begins. On the other side, Barney is known for being kind of inept and our conscience is not inept. It can be damaged. It can be defective and we'll talk about that. But as designed by God, our conscience is to be a faithful representative of him. And just like the real authority in Mayberry was Sheriff Andy Taylor, God is the real authority. Conscience can be in error, just like Barney could be in error. But when functioning the right way, the deputy is a representative of the sheriff. So Stephen Charnock says, conscience will bring to mind actions committed long ago and set them in order before the face as God's deputy acting by his authority and omniscience. So conscience has moral authority in your life as it represents God to you. So conscience is a court, it's a notary, it's a preacher, it's a mirror, it's a deputy. Hopefully that helps to fill out the picture of what the conscience is. Now how does it work? How does it operate? Well, throughout the years, Christians have realized that this is something that God has created in us that functions as part of our reasoning faculty. It's, it's in the mind. We are reasoning through what is right and wrong. And let me just kind of give you an explanation of what that looks like. The, the fancy word for that is, it's a syllogism. If you've done formal logic, you've got a major premise, a minor premise, and a conclusion. And if you haven't done formal logic, you might be looking at that and going, well, I don't think that way. Actually, you do. We all do. We just don't realize it. Okay, so this is, this is just the way that we reason. Even unbelievers reason this way, which is why conscience is universal. It's not something that only is an activity of the Holy Spirit in your life. It's actually a human faculty as well. Okay, so William Ames gives an example of how a syllogism works and he says, here's an example. The major premise, he that lives in sin shall die. Minor premise, specific to me, I live in sin. Conclusion, therefore I shall die. Or 
a better one. Whoever believes in Christ shall not die but live. I believe in Christ, therefore I shall not die but live. It's pretty basic. That's just basic reasoning. And we reason this way even when we're not realizing it. Okay? Now regarding moral choices and the conscience, here's a couple examples. I am bound to follow God's standard as my rule of faith and practice. Because he created me. He made me. He sets the rules for me. Minor premise, the Bible is God's standard. Conclusion, therefore, I am bound to follow the Bible as my rule of faith and practice. So then following on from that, the Bible says that stealing violates God's law. That's the major premise. Minor premise, I stole this money. Conclusion, therefore, I have violated God's law. This is what the conscience does. It takes these general principles that God has put in the mind and heart of man as well as what he's put in his word and it applies them to your life in specific situations. Conscience reasons this way even when we're not conscious of it. And, and the thing that I want you to realize here and, and just take this in and hold the thought for next week, okay? The better informed your conscience is, the better it functions, the better informed your conscience is, the better it functions. We're going to talk about that next week as we talk about how to interact with your conscience. So we've talked about what the conscience is. Now I want to talk about the conscience in mankind. And the first piece here is that it's universal. Everyone has a conscience. Believers, unbelievers... Everyone has a conscience. Romans 1. This is several slides. It's about five verses. Let me just read this through for you and just kind of follow along and think about this in terms of conscience. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. All men. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and along with that, I'll add in, their consciences became defective. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So Nathaniel Vincent says this thing called conscience is in everyone. There is no man without it. He goes on to say, you may as well suppose a man without understanding as a man without a conscience and without a power to know anything as without a power to reflect on himself. Every reasonable soul, being capable of both sin and grace, is endued with a power of reflecting upon itself that sin may be condemned and grace may be approved. He goes on to say, all are called upon to consider their ways. Haggai 1. But to take our own ways into consideration is the work of conscience. Conscience, therefore, is in all. And William Fenner, the Lord 
engraved conscience in man when he created him at first. Every person has a conscience. And he, Fenner goes on to give the example. He says, think about Joseph's story. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. And years and years later, after Joseph has risen to power in Egypt, his brothers come down, they buy grain, all of that. Eventually, Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. And 20 years after the sin they committed against Joseph, their conscience is at work. And they have dread and sorrow because of a sin they committed 20 years earlier. Fenner goes on as he talks about this to say, so we have consciences that can be in error. He says, we can deny our conscience. He gives the example of Judas who betrays Jesus, but then afterwards, what does he do? He comes and he casts the money back down and he says, I've sinned, right? That's his conscience at work. And so he says, there's, there's no greatness, there's no power on earth that can ultimately stifle the conscience forever. And he says, I confess, some seem to have lost conscience they can omit good duties as though they had no conscience at all. They can defer repentance and turning to God as though they had no more conscience than a beast. But one day, he says, conscience will appear and show plainly that it was present with them every moment of their lives and privy to all their thoughts and all their ways and set before them all the things that they have done. And here's why I, I, I take the time to explain that and share that quote. Every person with whom you interact, whether it's a believing friend or an unbeliever, has a conscience. They may deny the truth. They may have hardened themselves against it. They may simply just be parroting what the spirit of the age says, the current politically correct moral garbage. But they have a conscience. Deep down, they know the truth. And God says they're without excuse. So don't get sucked into doubting what God says. Have confidence in the word of God. Hold to the standard that God has given. Now, we understand conscience can be defective. It can be, it can be in error. It can have problems. And so I want to talk about just there are many, but three kinds of defects in conscience. First Timothy 4, verses 1 through 3. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Their consciences are seared. That's one kind. I'm going to talk about that one in a minute. Let me give you two others first. The first one is an erring conscience, a conscience that has errors. Samuel Ansley says, Conscience is sometimes deceived through ignorance of what is right or by apprehending a false rule for a true. 
an error for the will of God, sometimes through ignorance of the fact by misapplying a right rule to a wrong action. He says, conscience, evil informed, takes human traditions and false doctrines proposed under the show of divine authority to be the will of God. So your conscience can be in error. He goes on to say, though, the Bible teaches, number one, you should not go against your conscience. And the Bible teaches you should not follow error. So what is the person to do whose conscience is in error? It's not right to follow your conscience into error. It's also not right to go against your conscience. It's quite a dilemma. And so Ansley says, there is a middle way that is safe and good. Namely, the informing of the conscience better by God's word and following of it accordingly. This is, again, where we're going next week. But I want you to understand this as we think about how the conscience can be wrong. It's important for us to teach ourselves. It's important to train your conscience. It's important for the word of God to be dwelling in you richly so that when the time comes that your conscience is saying something to you, you know if it's right. Because your conscience can be in error. You could also have a sleepy conscience. Romans 11.8, God gave them a spirit of stupor or slumber, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. Just like when you're asleep, you're unaware of the things that are going on around you. You're not seeing, you're not hearing, you're not smelling, you're not tasting. When you have a sleepy conscience, you're unaware of spiritual realities around you. You're unaware of the realities of sin and of the consequences for sin. So Ansley again says, one of the worst kinds of conscience in the world is the sleepy conscience. Such is the conscience of every unconverted person that is not yet in horror. What does he mean by that? If you are not yet in horror at your sin, that's a dangerous place to be. Because you're clearly not understanding what that sin means in terms of consequences in your life. He says their spirit, that is their conscience, is asleep. As bodily sleep binds up all the senses, so this spiritual sleepiness binds up the soul from all sense of the evil of sin and want of grace. And therefore, in conversion, Christ does awaken the conscience. That's one of the things that he does when he saves someone is he enlivens your conscience. He wakes it up so that you're able to follow it. Joel Beakey and Mark Jones say, the drowsy conscience makes sinners indifferent to the reality of Scripture's truths. Such sinners live in a fog, unaware of impending death and judgment and unmoved by the horrors of hell. As we were driving on our vacation, we were going through Kansas at night, and it was one solid fog bank from coast to coast, I mean, from border to border. It, it was terrible. And so all of a sudden you would realize there's a curve or there's something, you know, something in front of me. And, and it wasn't until the last minute that you realized it. It's almost like that 
with this fogginess or drowsiness of conscience. William Fenner <clears throat> compared it to a carriage driver who is holding the reins but then falls asleep and lets go of the reins and the horses are free to go wherever they want. And then finally, the one that we actually read the verses at the beginning is a seared conscience, 1 Timothy 4. Your flesh is seared when it's burned deeply and it no longer has any sensitivity. The nerves are deadened. And the same is true with the conscience. What is it, though, that burns the conscience, that sears the conscience? It's the repeated practice of sin. William Perkins, writing about conscience, he says, Now the heart of man, being exceedingly obstinate and perverse, carries him to commit sins, even against the light of nature and common sense. We, 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 we even do sins that, like, everybody knows it's wrong. Something that you don't even need God's word to specifically tell you. Just something that, by the way God's designed us, we all know that's wrong. We will even do that. Our sin nature carries us into those things. And then he says, by practice of such sins, the light of nature is extinguished. And then comes the reprobate mind, which judges evil to be good and good to be evil. And after this follows the seared conscience in which there is no feeling or remorse. And after this comes an exceeding greediness to all manner of sin. So let me just put out that word of warning. And kids, I'm talking to you as well here. If you find yourself in the place where, for instance, your parents are telling you that something is wrong and you have no sense of sorrow, no sense of guilt or shame that you've done something that's wrong, you need to be aware that the conscience can be seared you may be in that place. And if that's the case for you, if you find yourself regularly saying, I don't think that's wrong, pray. Ask God by his spirit to awaken your conscience, to make it sensitive, to be willing to hear that was wrong and to turn in repentance and ask for forgiveness. Because God is merciful and gracious and he wants to do that. There are limits on the conscience as well. Some of them just the way that God has designed it. So conscience is a notary and a witness. It's limited to speaking the truth about what it knows. Conscience is a judge. It's limited to rule according to God's law. Conscience is a preacher. It's limited to proclaiming God's word. Conscience is a mirror. It's limited to showing what it sees. Conscience is a deputy. It's acting as God's representative in the soul. So let me just dig in on that one a little bit. Conscience is a deputy. It's acting as God's representative in the soul. But we've seen that conscience can be in error. What's the solution for an erring conscience? It has to be recalibrated. If you have a tool in your tool chest that is giving you faulty measurements that are not accurate, that tool needs to be recalibrated. 
Well, how would you recalibrate the conscience? Our consciences need to be instructed by the word of God. And we'll talk more about that next week, but for now, realize that the conscience's job as God's deputy is to represent God to you. And for the conscience to do that faithfully, it has to be informed by God's word. So David Clarkson says, conscience is God's deputy and must in the exercise of this office confine itself to the orders and instructions of its sovereign Lord, he who rules all. So conscience is not supposed to put rules on you beyond what God does. It's supposed to faithfully represent God, which means you need to know what God says. And that's why Luther insisted that it was not safe or right to disobey his conscience. His conscience had been informed by the word of God. He knew that obeying his conscience was obeying God's deputy and therefore ultimately obeying God himself. So Luther said, unless I'm convinced, listen to it again, by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant because acting against one's conscience when your conscience is captive to the word of God is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Let me finish by pointing us to the gospel and the conscience. Ultimately, our conscience should drive us to Christ. For the unbeliever, the conscience tells you that you've broken God's law. We all know in our minds and our hearts that we're sinners. Conscience affirms that. And the only solution is found in the gospel. Christ died for sinners. And the troubled conscience can only find peace in trusting Christ. In his death on the cross, Christ paid the penalty that your conscience tells you you deserve. And so when you look to him in faith, when you trust him for salvation, the merit of Christ can be applied to you and your sin and you can have peace of conscience. For the believer, conscience tells you that you've disobeyed your Lord or it affirms that you have obeyed your Lord. If you've disobeyed, conscience knows that peace can be found in confessing your sin and finding forgiveness. So William Gurnall says, peace of conscience is nothing but the echo of pardoning mercy. Peace of conscience is nothing but the echo of pardoning mercy. In other words, peace of conscience flows out of the gospel. The work of Christ is what allows conscience to be satisfied as the righteousness of Christ covers us. Let's pray. Lord, as we've talked this morning about the conscience, we recognize that this is maybe something we don't think about all that often. And probably for many of us, especially in the culture that we live in, we may have allowed ourselves to become desensitized to sin. I pray that you would help us to 
begin again to understand what the conscience is and why you have given us the conscience and how we're supposed to listen to our conscience. I pray that even over the next couple of weeks, you would teach us how to live more faithfully. We thank you for the gift that conscience is. You haven't just let us go, but you've put your deputy in our soul to tell us to stop and to raise the questions we need to answer and to point us in the right direction. And so I pray that we would become people who are responsive to our conscience. We thank you for the gospel. Conscience tells us that we've done something wrong. And in the gospel, you tell us what you've done about it. And so we want to be people who look to you in faith, who live in peace with our conscience, out of gratitude for what you've done for us in Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.